Section 20 of The Outline of Science, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Coos, John Thomas Coos Kosmarski. The Outline of Science by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 20, Applied Science, Part 3, Flying, Part 1. One of the greatest scientific triumphs of the present age was the solution of the problem of flight. Since the legendary days when Icarus flew too near the sun and was killed, flying has stirred the imagination of man, and every age has added a little to the history of flight. To the twentieth century belongs the day that man first flew in a heavier-than-air motor-propelled machine. The Great War, which broke out in August 1914, gave aviation the impetus it needed to develop it from the pursuit of a few enthusiasts to the powerful thing it now is. There were thousands of young men in the autumn of 1914 who had never previously given a thought to flying, who, in the course of a few months, became the Balls, Bishops, and McCuddens, who thrilled the world with their amazing deeds. The war ended, flying had become an accepted everyday fact. Soon we saw Alcock, Ross Smith, and Van Reineveld accomplish flights across the Atlantic to Australia and to South Africa. The first airplane to fly successfully was built by the Wright brothers. Orville Wright, flying for 12 seconds on December 17, 1903. Three further flights were made in the same day, the longest lasting 59 seconds and covering a distance of 852 feet. This machine was fitted with an engine of only 16 horsepower and flew at about 35 miles an hour. Later, the Wrights carried out flights of many miles and were unable to attain recognition until 1908, when Wilbur Wright gave many exhibition flights in Europe. Today, we have aircraft fitted with engines totaling over 1,500 horsepower and flying at speeds of over 200 miles an hour. Three Great Flights Within less than 20 years from the first flight of the Brothers Wright, flights across the Atlantic to South Africa and to Australia were made. The first of these was that of Alcock and Brown from Newfoundland across the Atlantic to Ireland, the journey being made in just over 16 hours against the normal period of six days for boat traveling. This, however, must be looked upon in the nature of a show performance. It is unlikely that we shall see just yet a regular airplane service across the Atlantic. This service is more likely to be carried out by airships, and it will be recollected that the R-34 made the trip from New York to Norfolk in just over three days, which was less than half the time required by the average liner. When speaking of commercial air routes, it must be remembered that if an airplane has to make a very long non-stop flight, it has to carry an enormous quantity of petrol. The lift of an airplane is limited, and if most of the weight is taken up by petrol, very few passengers and very little cargo can be carried and flying ceases to become a commercial proposition. If flights are made in shorter stages, sufficient petrol can be carried with a greater load of passengers and goods. 
Probably 250 miles is about the economic limit of airplane aerial transport stages. The next epoch-making flight was that of Ross Smith and Keith Smith from England to Australia. This flight has a very direct bearing on commercial aviation, as it was not so much in the nature of a stunt as the Atlantic flight, but was carried out in stages with remarkable regularity. A schedule was laid down, and owing to the excellence of the machine, was carried out almost to the hour, the whole trip being made in thirty days. The chief difficulty encountered on this trip was the lack of organization of the route. From London, as far as India, all went comparatively well, for an efficient organization extends from England through France, Italy, and Greece to Egypt, and thence through Palestine and Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf to India. After India, little has been done, and though excellent work was carried out by local authorities to help to make the flight a success, it was the third part of the journey which was the most difficult. The next flight was that from England to South Africa, carried out by van Rheinveld and brand from england to egypt the journey was comparatively simple after egypt the difficult part of the route was encountered the writer had a great deal to do with the organization of the routes from england to egypt and egypt to india and later with the cairo cape town route it was the middle section of this line which gave most trouble vegetation was so thick that it was only by employing huge gangs of negroes that the trees and undergrowth could be cleared away in order to make landing places so luxuriant was the growth that by the time the laborers had cleared the ground and reached the far end of the aerodrome the vegetation was already several feet high on the part on which they had commenced it was only by continual work that the growth was kept under. A further difficulty was the presence of white ants, which built mounds from three to ten feet high with great rapidity. In many cases, these mounds were so hard that they had to be removed by means of dynamite and gunpowder. Tools and machinery were non-existent, and rough places had to be rolled smooth with trunks of trees hewn down and pushed backwards and forwards by gangs of natives. Between the aerodromes, the tropical forest made safe landing impossible in case of engine failure. Further difficulties were experienced owing to the heat of the central African plateau. In order to economize labor, the aerodromes had been made on the small side. The heat and rarefied air made it difficult for machines to rise without a very long run, and in several cases the aerodromes had to be extended before the airplanes could be got off. Of the four machines trying to make this flight, three crashed at various stages. Van Rijenveld and Brand succeeded, however, in getting through, though they reached Cape Town in a different machine to that in which the flight was commenced. Weather on the airways. Apart from these great flights, modern aircraft are capable of astounding performances. They can carry loads of upwards of 24 tons, fly at 200 miles an hour, cover distances of over 1,000 miles without stopping, rise to heights as great as Mount Everest. Daily, they fly from end to end of Europe and from the Atlantic to the Pacific across the USA. The state of the weather is a certain handicap to airmen. 
but immense strides are being made both in the organization of local reports and also in overcoming difficulties the only real weather danger when flying is fog on several occasions when the wind has been so rough that the cross-channel streamers have been storm-bound in harbor aircraft have safely made the journey between london and paris when the country is fog-bound flying becomes a different matter it is not the actual flying which is interfered with for pilots can control machines perfectly well whilst in the air even in foggy weather but it is the danger of not being able to see the ground beneath and therefore not being able to choose a safe spot in the event of a forced landing that makes flying in fog dangerous even when the journey is accomplished as is normally the case without a forced landing the pilot finds it impossible to pick out the aerodrome and may quite well hit a building or a hedge or overshoot the mark when endeavouring to land the system of weather reporting employed on the airways between london and paris is simple in the extreme reports are sent in from the intermediate stations by wireless at frequent intervals and are posted up at all the aerodromes en route before starting on any particular flight the pilot can always obtain the exact report of the weather conditions then prevailing at all points on his route as in other things it is the man who counts as much as the machine the difficulties encountered sometimes demand courage skill and resource on the part of the pilot we may give one instance on an occasion during the winter of nineteen twenty one when the weather was extremely foggy on the london paris route meteorological information came through to the aerodrome at paris that the route was covered in mist but there was a chance of it clearing later three machines two british and one french decided to attempt the journey and with full loads of passengers left le bourget aerodrome the french machine landed at poix when less than a third of the journey had been done the pilot being unable to stand the strain of flying with only occasional glimpses of the ground and not knowing where he would land if his engine cut out the two british machines continued their journey until the channel was reached when the fog descended lower and lower until both were crossing the water at a height where the machines almost grazed the masts of the occasional ships over which they passed mackintosh the pilot of the handley page decided it was so foggy a few feet from the earth he would be no worse off higher up he pushed up the nose of his machine and climbed some thousands of feet into the fog-filled air the other machine crept on feeling its way across the channel until it crossed the coast near folkestone by that time the suspense had almost worn out the pilot and having accomplished the most important part of his journey and got his passengers across the channel he landed at limpne a landing in fog by means of steering on a compass course and by the guidance he received through his wireless mackintosh flew on with his load of passengers until he was over croydon aerodrome he knew he was over the aerodrome by the wireless signals he was receiving from below so he throttled back his engine pulled down the nose of his machine and hoped that as he dropped to earth the fog would become clearer and he would be able to sight the aerodrome and land gradually the altimeter dropped to three thousand two thousand one thousand and five hundred feet but still he was wrapped in a dense mist on his wireless he was conversing continually 
with the people on the ground who were endeavoring to guide him to earth on the ground the sound of the motors could be plainly heard as the handley page circled round and round vainly endeavoring to get a glimpse of the earth so that it could come down rockets were fired into the air to give some guidance but without success all they could do was to wait and hope for the best the men waiting by the motor ambulance started up the engine and got ready their first aid appliances as the fog extended right down to the surface of the ground it did not appear possible that mackintosh would be able to bring down the machine in safety and with nine people on board there seemed every likelihood of a dangerous crash for some twenty minutes the drone of the engines continued getting fainter as the machine moved away and growing stronger as it came back to the aerodrome under the guidance of the wireless at last the roar suddenly died down to a whisper and as the waiting officials looked at each other expecting every minute to hear the sound of the crash the huge machine suddenly loomed out of the fog and landed literally at their feet outside the custom house when the door of the airplane was unlocked the passengers came out one by one quite unperturbed not realizing that they had been in any danger and wondering what all the fuss was about wireless and civil aviation wireless telegraphy and telephony of course are important factors in modern flying the civilian pilot resorts to them before commencing a flight to find out weather conditions along the route he reports progress by wireless from the air as he flies at one hundred miles per hour he announces the time of his probable arrival if he wants the ground illuminated for a night landing he is guided on his way by wireless if he flies in fog he converses with the pilots of other aircraft by means of his wireless telephone in the future it is quite possible that aircraft will be entirely controlled by wireless from the ground whilst motive power may well be transmitted from ground stations to the machine in flight the future of flying and wireless are bound together the first requisite of a good commercial airplane is the ability to carry a heavy load at a low cost in other words the weight carried must be kept up whilst the engine power is kept down the next essential is speed then comes slow landing so that the machine may be brought down safely in any spot in the event of a forced landing rapidity of climbing power the quality of being easy to maneuver and ability to fly to great altitudes need not be considered when commercial aircraft are being designed one of the best commercial airplanes at the present time 1922 is the dh-34 this machine with a napier engine of 450 horsepower carries 10 passengers in an enclosed cabin in addition to the pilot and steward another machine is the dh-29 this is a monoplane fitted with a 450 horsepower napier engine having accommodation for 12 passengers in an enclosed cabin the dh series of machines illustrates excellently the improvements in design of commercial machines the engine power remains about the same but the revenue load increases this is made possible by improvements in the design of the machine itself abroad the farman goliath is a good illustration of present-day commercial aircraft this machine carries twelve passengers in addition to a pilot and a mechanic and is fitted with two 260 horsepower 
Salmson engines. Many people are of opinion that multiplication of engines tends to increase safety. This is a debatable point, for very few twin-engine machines are able to fly with only one engine running. Makers frequently claim that the machine will fly with one engine only, but in actual practice, with a full load, nine twin-engine machines out of ten become unmanageable unless both engines are running or both are cut off. Though aircraft are undoubtedly growing more and more essential as military weapons of defense and offense, there is no doubt that their greatest future lies in civilian spheres. At the present time, we are gradually feeling our way until the time when better machines, better knowledge of the air, better organizations, and more public support enable us to cover the earth with a network of airways. There is reasonable hope that in the not distant future, all mails will be airborne, and much of the long-distance passenger traffic will be by air. The carriage of heavy goods and short-distance passenger traffic is another matter. It is probable that for many years to come, the bulk of this traffic will be carried by older methods of transport, finding the way in the air. The first thing to be done before civil flying becomes an everyday matter is the marking out of the aerial routes which will be used. These should be provided with small emergency landing grounds at intervals of 10 to 20 miles, so that aircraft can always have a clear spot in which to land, no matter what the emergency. These aerodromes must be fitted up with ground lights so that pilots in charge of night flying machines will have the same advantages as pilots flying by day. There is little need to signpost the air by means of kite balloons or searchlight signals, as has sometimes been suggested, for with the development of wireless for direction finding and of efficient maps, any pilot can find his way with ease. There are several methods of finding the way in the air. The first of these is for the pilot to compare the ground over which he flies with his map. This is the simplest and most accurate but can only be used when the atmosphere is clear and the ground beneath visible. The second method is to work out the correct compass bearing before starting a flight, and then proceed solely by means of compass guidance until the destination is reached. Unfortunately, the currents of air tend to make an airplane drift out of its course, so that the pilot flying on a compass course has occasionally to check his position by comparing his map and the ground. The third and most up-to-date method is by wireless direction finding, by means of which signals are sent out when requested by the pilot from one or more ground stations and the direction of the currents marked by the pilot on the map. The point where these lines intersect is his position at the time. One serious problem which confronts the man who is likely to use a private airplane is the question of aerodrome accommodation. An aerodrome large enough to accommodate all types of aircraft must have a minimum area of about 60 acres. Needless to say, each man cannot have his own aerodrome, but it is suggested that each village will have its own landing ground and that the users of private airplanes will proceed to the aerodrome when they wish to fly. How an Airplane Flies The method by which an airplane flies is very similar to that which maintains a kite in the air. 
a kite is pulled against the wind by a string to get pressure the wind tending to blow the kite away and the string to hold it back the result is that as long as the wind and the pull remain constant the kite tends to rise in an airplane the string which pulls the kite is replaced by an air screw with a kite if the center of the pressure is altered it dips and swerves in an airplane a similar thing happens causing the airplane to be bumped birds have this trouble also rooks landing on a windy day are often tilted off their balance and have either to try again or land badly in the air they may be noticed adjusting themselves to the bumps caused by sudden alterations in the center of air pressure so far as flying is concerned the wings are the most important part of an airplane there may be one two or more sets of planes according to the type of machine monoplane biplane triplane etc these planes are slightly curved the apex of the curve being nearer the front than the near of the wing the thickness of a plane also varies for it gains in breadth somewhat abruptly from the front to the apex of the curve and then narrows down gradually to the rear of the plane when in flight this wing is not absolutely parallel to the path of flight but is slightly tilted so that the wind blows against its under surface the rush of air round the wing sets up pressure on the underside and suction on the top surface the so-called lift of a wing being about two-thirds suction and one-third pressure in order to keep up the flow of air round the wings an airplane has to be fitted with a motor an internal combustion engine built on similar principles to the engine of a motor car this engine revolves the air screw which either pulls or pushes the wings through the air and so causes the necessary lift to be set up what the pilot does the control of an airplane is simple in the extreme there are two levers for the use of the pilot one an upright control lever known as the joystick which works the elevator and ailerons or wing flaps the other a rudder bar set near the floor of the machine and operated by the pilot's feet in addition there are the ordinary switches and ignition and throttle controls for the engine which at present is always of the internal combustion type the principle of the internal combustion aero engine is as follows though types vary in themselves all work on the four-stroke or auto cycle principle the action of the engine is divided into four operations each operation occupying one stroke of the piston the first stroke sucks a mixture of petrol gas and air into the cylinder the second compresses the gas as the piston moves up the cylinder just before the compression is at its greatest an electric spark produced by a magneto or batteries and conducted to the cylinder through a sparking plug explodes the compressed gas and the expansion of the burnt gas forces the piston down the cylinder again the energy being transmitted to a flywheel and keeps revolutions regular the fourth action of the piston expels the burnt gas from the cylinder at the fifth stroke the cycle of operations recommences these strokes are called in the order given above the induction or sucking in stroke the compression stroke the ignition or power stroke and the exhaust stroke aero engines are of 
three main types stationary radial and rotating cylinder generally called rotary in rising a pilot opens out his engine until the airplane is moving across the ground at a sufficient speed he then gently draws the control lever in towards him and in so doing moves the elevator which causes the airplane to rise into the air when sufficient height has been attained a slight movement forward of the control lever causes the airplane to flatten out and fly on an even keel when turning the pilot simultaneously presses his foot on the rudder bar thus moving over the rudder and at the same time moves the control lever in the same direction this movement of the control lever operates the ailerons or wing flaps so that the airplane tilts up slightly on one wing tip and is therefore able to turn more easily and more safely than if it made a flat turn with the rudder alone when the turn has been made the operations are reversed and the airplane again brought on an even keel to descend the pilot throttles back the engine simultaneously pushing forward the control lever this moving the elevator so that the machine dips downwards and glides towards earth when a few feet from the ground he gently moves back the control lever so that the airplane assumes a horizontal position and as it loses speed with the engine throttled right back and the propeller turning very slowly it sinks gently to earth and runs along the ground to a standstill a glide can be made in any direction but the landing itself should be made upwind the landing speed of airplanes varies according to the type some coming to earth at about thirty miles per hour and others at nearly a hundred miles per hour probably an average is fifty to fifty five miles per hour aerial maneuvers are all simple to the experienced pilot and if properly performed involve no strain on the machine which the designer has not taken into consideration smoothness of movement and absence of jerking of the controls are essential an airplane in a nosedive should be corrected slowly if the pilot abruptly pulls back the control lever the machine may be injured in a vital part owing to the sudden extra strain aerial stunts or aerobatics as they are officially called need slightly different methods in different types of craft generally speaking the principal maneuvers performed are spinning looping and side slipping in spinning the pilot throttles the engine right back pulls the control lever right back and pushes the rudder hard over ruddering to the left will cause a left spin and vice versa to come out of a spin the pilot centralizes all the controls and when a dive results he gently pulls back the control over until the machine once more attains an even keel in looping the pilot pushes the control lever slightly forward so that the nose of the machine drops and additional speed is gained then he pulls the control lever back when the machine will put up her nose and loop as the machine descends from the loop the pilot gradually centralizes the control lever on certain types it is necessary to use the rudder control to prevent the machine swinging and slipping off the top of a loop in side slipping the pilot to side slip to the left pushes the control lever over to left and keeps the rudder central when the machine commences to slip he puts on a little right 
or top rudder to prevent the machine turning to left to level up the pilot pushes the control lever to the right and slightly forward keeping the rudder central almost every stunt is a variation or combination of these three maneuvers to those unused to flying a spin is an unpleasant sensation which if unintentionally caused is usually due to stalling or losing flying speed it is however not at all dangerous and can easily be counteracted by the pilot bumping is the slight rocking motion felt when an upward or downward current of air is encountered it is usually felt most when flying low in hot weather but small bumps are invariably encountered under all conditions in extreme cases in a thunderstorm or when flying over the desert the machine may descend or ascend a hundred feet or more in one bump needless to say even such extreme cases as this are not in the least dangerous though possibly unpleasant end of section twenty recording by john thomas coos john thomas coos kuzmarski www.validateyourlife.com